Welcome to the Antioch Community Church Podcast. We are a church located in the downtown Birmingham area where we desire to be with and like Jesus and help others do the same for the glory of God. We hope today's message encourages and challenges you. I don't know about you, but I love uh, backyard games because they require very little skill and that is my expertise when it comes to athletic things is things that require very little skill Um, cornhole ladder toss all those games but i think of all of them the most savage of them all is the game of horseshoes savage why savage you say Um, What other game is there that we give animals shoes and then we steal their shoes from them and then we turn it into a game? That's a little savage. I mean, can you just... That's not funny. (laughs) I had this whole joke. Let's just forget it. Uh, I was going to say, what if if the horses came in and tried to steal our shoes and then they made a game out of it called Human Shoes? We'll just get to this. Look at that. Just been worried, you know, that I'll see a, you know, a horse coming up on my, my doorbell camera just trying to say, give me your shoes! Just too, too much dad humor, I guess. Too many, too many kids in my house. They'll appreciate it. Um, when we come to this, uh, this passage, um, one of the words that we'll see on what our rebellion is, is missing the mark. Where was he going with that? That's where I was going with that. When you play a game like ladder toss, or when you play cornhole, or horseshoe, you're, you're really just doing one thing, you're trying to aim for, for a mark. There's a whole, you know, sports around this entire thing, just marksmanship, looking for that bullseye and trying to hit that bullseye, whatever that might be. And so for horseshoe, there's a stake in the ground about 40 feet away that you're throwing this thing and you're trying to, to get it close to it. And if you do really well, you'll get a ringer which is where it goes right around it, and if it does it really well, it actually kind of rings around the stake, and you get three points instead of just one point when it lays near it. What's that? Thank you. Thank you so much. So you throw this thing, and you try to get a ringer, and um, you know what you're aiming for. You're just looking at that stake. But when it comes to what God is calling us to do, what do you think the mark might be for you. What, what do you think God's mark for us is? Now, I can almost guarantee that whatever the first thing came into your mind is probably close, but according to Psalm 51, it's, it's a bit surprising what the actual mark is. Because the thing that naturally comes to our mind of what that mark is that we're trying to hit is not natural to us. And so I want us to start here in verse 1. When David says this, Have mercy on me, O God. Now, just to give a little bit of background context to this, um, David has, this is David at his lowest. This is David in his, really in his darkest day. He is, he's essentially gotten drunk on his own sin. He's, He's just kind of spiraled out of control. He's, 
Um, he's abused his power as king at the time to sexually assault a woman named Bathsheba, and then he ends up having her husband killed in the line of duty, and almost in a cowardly way, he couldn't do it himself, and so he did it that way. And up until that point, there really hadn't been any repentance. And so you see this little note at the very beginning of Psalm 51. It said, uh, when, the, when Nathan the prophet went to him. So we hear about this earlier um, in the Old Testament, that Nathan comes to him and he confronts him about his sin, and he calls him out. That Bathsheba was innocent and that he's the one that's guilty. And in doing that, God kind of snaps him out of it and brings conviction on him. And then part of that, we get this little uh, window into his repentance through Psalm 51. And so he's, he's come to himself. He's seen he has gone so far away, so astray. And he just starts by saying, God, have mercy on me. He knows that God has to be merciful to him because if he got what he deserved, then there would be no, you know, there wouldn't be any more of this psalm. So he starts with, God, have mercy on me according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercies. And then he starts to, in verse, uh, the end of verse 1 and verse 2, he names uh, our rebellion uh, with three different words. Uh, the first is transgressions, the second is iniquity, and then the third is sin. So he starts with transgression. Now, the, the most used one, the one that you might be most familiar with is sin. But he starts with transgressions. And the idea of transgression is it's this bold disobedience. It's seeing the line and crossing it and knowing that you're crossing it. Iniquity um, is kind of, I mean, it's, it seems that it's almost like transgressions, but just continued. It's like this escalating um, transgression that's just, you're doing this bold disobedience pattern of living could get expressed in different ways it might just be the might just be one way but it's escalating and it's continual and habitual and then he uses the word that's probably most similar to us which is sin which most simply means missing the mark this is a marksman's word it was originally used for shooting an arrow trying to get that bullseye and Understanding that God has a bullseye, which is the question that this passage is going to begin to get you to raise for yourself. Okay, what is God's bullseye? What is the mark that he has for me? And again, probably the first thing that comes into your mind is close, but just slightly off enough that it's going to actually take you away from Jesus and not closer to him. He keeps on going in verse 3. He says, I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And then he just starts to unpack before the Lord. This is really a prayer of David and his conviction. And he's naming his sin. Now, I think it's, it's easy for me sometimes, myself, to, um, to get into a mindset that really... God is only offended by the things that I do that are bad. And those are kind of the, the obvious things, whatever the first things that come to mind for you are. Those things that are, you know, on your list that just pop right to mind. Like, well, I know God disapproves of this. But then there's this whole other aspect of what God has called us to that are things that we can leave undone 
So it's not just the bad things that we do. It says the Book of Common Prayer talks about it's not just the, the things that we shouldn't do that we do, but it's actually all the good things that we don't do, that we leave undone. And uh, as a little experiment with this, a little test, if you want to uh, flip open to 1 Corinthians 13, this will be uh, a little bit over in your Bible, or you can just listen. There's a little 1 Corinthians 13 test of how guilty are you feeling today? Because some of you, I, I recognize there is a spectrum on any given day for any given person of how guilty you might feel. On some days you feel great. You're like, I, I honestly can't think of, I mean, I'm sure there's been something, I can't think of anything quote unquote bad that I've done. And you might be one of those people who was maybe like the teacher's pet as a kid and you just lead like, you just led a really clean life. And you might honestly really struggle to think, I can't actually think of anything quote unquote bad that I've ever really done. I mean, I'm sure I could come up with some little small thing here or there. But when you open up the whole other side of sin, that it's not just the things that you do, but also the things that you don't do, then it's like conviction can just start to come like a waterfall because then you begin to see all the missed opportunities and missed moments of obedience. And so the Old and New Testament, Jesus reinforces this, that the two most important commands are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, heart soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. So love is the most important thing. So if that's the most important thing, let's start with that, which is what 1 Corinthians 13 is all about. So I'm just going to read the middle part of, of uh, this chapter because it gives a, a really crystal clear snapshot of what love is. And then we'll go back and do a little self-assessment. I even just kind of ask you to just perk up your ears and just listen for um, maybe which one of their sparks flying of where... Maybe you weren't even realizing it walking in today, but all of a sudden the Holy Spirit's saying, look, actually right here, maybe you've never even thought about it, you haven't really noticed, there may have been a long time, but actually right here is um, an area of things you've left undone. So it starts with this. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. And I'll stop there. Have you, let's just take the last day. Have you been perfectly patient? Have you been perfectly kind? Again, maybe there's been any outburst of anything, but have you been completely without envy? And boasting? Have you been completely without arrogance or being rude? Have you not once in the last day insisted on your own way? Have you in the last 24 hours not been irritable? Well, you don't know what they did. Have you been irritable? Resentful? Have you rejoiced at wrongdoing? Have you always rejo rejoiced with the truth? Have you borne all things, believed all things, 
hoped all things, endured all things. Now, it doesn't take but that first one, love is patient, to convict every single one of us. So if you haven't done that, you have not fulfilled the most important command today. So you may have walked in today saying, look, I, I don't need a reminder of my guilt. I don't need a reminder of how ashamed I am. So some of you are carrying, you know, just a really heavy burden. Something that, you know, it, I mean, it, it's like, you know, in Proverbs it talks about how there's folly bound up in the heart of a child. And not all that folly gets unbound. And there can be things that can stay with you in through adulthood that that foolishness, which is ultimately what sin is, that can end up messing with you, like flies on a horse, just kind of, just there, you feel like you're always just kind of smacking around, they're just constant annoyances. But you might be on that other end of the spectrum, of where you're like, I mean, yeah, honestly, if I really think about it, I can't really point to a single big bad thing I've ever done. Regardless of where you're at on that spectrum today, and again, it might have been different yesterday, it might be different tomorrow, but regardless of where you're at on that spectrum, we're all in the same boat. All of us, quite frankly, are guilty. We all carry some degree of shame for whether things that you've done or things that you have left undone. Now, I want to take you back to Psalm 51. Since we all failed that test, myself included. Congratulations, guys. What's that? The sliding scale. Yes, we're all on the sliding scale. That's right. All on the sliding scale. Absolutely. There we go. Back sliding scale. I like it. Now, look with me in verses five and six. Actually, just verse six. This is where it actually starts to ratchet up a bit. And this is one of the things that, for me, the, the sparks were kind of flying as I was studying over the last week. In verse 6, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So we get another window into not only who God is, but actually what he likes. It says that he likes truth on the inside, the inward being, and that he actually is gracious enough to teach us wisdom in the secret heart. Now, don't skip over that word secret heart because I think Jesus gets to this so much in the Gospels about, you know, your hearts are far from me. Isaiah gets this, your hearts are far from me. Your lips might be close to me, your hands might be close to me, but your hearts are far from me. And then Jesus takes the, the things that we hear in the Old Testament and ratchets it up by saying, you know, it, it's not enough to just say, well, I haven't committed adultery. He says, if you've looked on another person with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. And he says, if you've, you say, well, I haven't murdered anyone. And he says the same thing. He says, well, if you've hated someone, if you've had hatred in your heart towards someone, you've committed murder. Now, obviously, the consequences are vastly different for both of those things. But he says, there 
in his eyes, the same thing. Why? Because adultery and murder both start in the heart. It's so easy just to get focused on the fruit. And, and you can spend your whole life just, you know, cutting off fruit and trying to staple on new fruit. But what God wants to do, and you cannot do this alone, but what he wants to do is actually start to get to your heart. Start to get down to the roots. This pops up again, um, actually a, a few more times throughout this song. Because it's interesting, um, David himself has not just committed adultery in his heart and murder in his heart, he's committed both in reality. And oddly enough, you know, I'm sure he did, this is not, I'm sure this is not the only prayer he prayed to God about this, but the one that we have, he doesn't actually mention those two things by name other than in the introduction, which I believe that he wrote, mentions um, his sin towards Bathsheba. But what he keeps bringing up is his spirit, his inner being, his heart, his secret heart. When you and I feel guilty, it's easy to focus on that thing that we've done, or even, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 13, those things that we've left undone. And even though it's harder, the, the, the more helpful thing to us all is to look a little bit deeper and to say, what's, what is going on in my heart? That, what are those roots that led to that fruit being able to grow? That's actually where God wants to do his work. In verse 10, um, David just crying out, he says, creating me a clean heart. Like he knows his heart is unclean. It's, it's filthy. It's gotten dirt and mud on it. Oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. So again, those ideas of heart and spirit just coming up again. The secret heart, you know, it's, it's so easy to, um, this, it's, so, it's, it's the most important place in your life. It's the most important part about you, and yet it's the most hidden part about you, which is why it's so easy to be a hypocrite. And, you, and no one can point a finger at anybody else about being a hypocrite except for yourself, because we all do this. We, we, it's so easy to, to think, well, okay, well, obviously God can't really put up with the real me and other people. I don't want them to see the real me. And so we end up just putting on masks and putting on a show. Because, quite frankly, you don't know what's going on in my heart. And I don't know what's going on in your heart either. And so we can, we can fake it. We can hide from each other. But then, this goes even a level deeper. That word secret in verse 6 for secret heart, it literally means blocked. So it's not just like it's in this secret, hidden place that's hard to find, like treasure on a hidden treasure on a map or something. It's actually blocked. Like it's, it's under lock and key. You can't get to it. Which rings true to me. If I could really get to my heart, I would. Because just like Paul says, I don't do the things I want to do, and I find myself doing the things I don't want to do. This is quite a predicament every single human finds himself in. And if we're just, you know, just a little bit honest with ourselves, you connect with that. 
that your heart is, it's even blocked from you. That even you can't get in there to clean it up and to fix it. And what you, you will end up leading a miserable, especially if you identify as a follower of Jesus, you will lead a miserable life, a miserable religious exercise if you expect yourself to be able to get in there and to do that work on your own. Because what your life will become is just sin management and putting on a show and things like that. But this is, this is a call to see the desperate nature of yourself. Not other people, but just you. So what are you to do about that? What are you to do about the fact that your heart is unclean, verse 10, and your spirit is wrong? And then in verse 6, that your heart is blocked. I think David, near the end of this psalm, begins to, sh to, to let us see a way forward. If you uh, scan down to verse 16 and 17. He says this in verse 16, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. So I want to pause there for just a moment. You will, you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. Now, again, you know, you'll, you'll hear sacrifices talked about quite a bit because it's all throughout the Old Testament. It's not something that's remotely common to us in our society and culture and day and age. Um, but if you're remotely familiar with the Old Testament, you know that this is, this is what God set up to be able to make it possible for people to engage with him. It wasn't a punishment. It was an invitation saying, look, you, you are unclean, and I want to make a way possible for you to come and be in my presence. And so they would offer up a sacrifice the punishment of sin is death. And so he would say, look, putting your sins on this animal cleanses you at least temporarily to be in my presence. But here in Isaiah and other places, um, when God, when it comes to, you know, push to shove, it's, it's true. You, he doesn't delight in that. He's not like bloodthirsty or something. He's not getting a kick out of, you know, animals being slaughtered. He doesn't delight in that. He doesn't delight in any external outward thing you could do to say, well, this is my sacrifice to show you I'm really serious about this, that I really, I really get that I'm, I am a sinner. I am guilty before you. I will, whatever it looks like for you, even if it's just in your own spirit, a spirit of making a sacrifice to him. He won't delight in that. But then verse 17 shows us that the very thing that we think God will despise, he actually delights in. And the thing that we expect him to delight in, he actually despises. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Verse 16, we expect him to delight in sacrifice. We expect him to delight in outward confessions and, and you know, saying, oh God, I'll never do this again, or you know, just going and confessing to everyone you know, or wh whatever it might be. He doesn't delight in that. 
And the thing that we don't expect him to delight in is the thing that he does delight in, the thing we expect him to hate and despise and, and to say, oh, I don't, I don't want that anywhere near me, is to come to him with a broken and contrite heart. Contrite's not a word that, when was the last time you texted the word contrite? It's not a word that we use all that often, but I think we kind of get the general idea of it. It literally means crushed. A shattered and crushed heart he won't despise. This is the mark, I think, that Psalm 51 is showing us, that, that is pointing us to. Because on one hand, you could say, well, okay, if sin is literally, if it, that literally means missing the mark, okay, then the mark must mean holiness, perfection. Isn't that what I should be striving towards? Yes, but no. Yes, and that lasted for about two pages of the Bible. And that's over. We're not getting back to that. Because in Adam, we all sinned. In Adam, you sinned. You've already missed that opportunity. So we leave that to Jesus. And now our mark becomes this. Bringing your heart in whatever state it is, as often as you need, to God. He wants your heart. Time and time again, Old and New Testament, that's what he wants. And we think, well, if my heart isn't, quote-unquote, right or clean or without sin, then he doesn't, I mean, he loves me, but he doesn't want that. And he actually does. He delights in that. He delights in a heart that says, this, I, I am on the inside, I don't understand myself. On the, and, and that you're, you're broken by it, you're shattered by it, and that you're crushed by it. Because that actually is the only way that you have any hope of finding any healing. Because, yeah, it's blocked, and you don't have the key, but he does. Jeremiah 17 tells us that he searches hearts. He can... He knows your heart. So if he knows your heart and you are acting like he doesn't by concealing from him, I mean, what kind of relationship works that way? Allie probably does really know my heart. I mean, she probably really does search and she probably, she does. But she doesn't and even still, Intimacy means that you, you give your heart to the other person. And God actually knows it and searches it. He just wants you to acknowledge that he already does. He wants you to get on the same page with him. That he wants to wash you whiter than snow. But as long as you are keeping your heart from him, and, and what that looks like I think is, is just, most practically, is just honest prayer. I think in its most concrete form, this is an honest prayer. Myself, when I find myself feeling guilty, feeling shame for whatever reason, Psalm 51 is often a place I'll go to, to just even jumpstart an honest prayer. But also an honest reminder of the true character and heart of God. That he doesn't delight in sacrifice. And he doesn't 
not despise a broken and contrite heart. That's what he delights in. If you want to make God happy, give him your heart on your worst day. That's what he wants. Give him what he wants. Don't keep that from him. That's the mark. Yeah, perfection, holiness. That was the original. We missed it. So now this is your opportunity. This is your mark. Will you, will you trust God and his mercy enough and the finished work of Christ enough to not make up stuff? I'm not saying go all over here and, and start, you know, I'm not talking, we're not talking about being stoic and just, you know, down ourselves, but just honest. Just honest with yourself, honest with your Father, honest with Jesus, and offer him your shattered and crushed heart because he will not despise it. That is a promise. He won't despise it. And I think as we do this, as you and I do this, as we imperfectly, you know, two steps forward, one step back, do this over the course of our lifetime, I think it, it has a, a number of effects on us. And you get a little glimpse of this throughout the psalm. Um, verse 13, we see, I think, one effect that this had on David and that it has on us is when he says this, then I will, after he does this, and when he says, you know, restore to me the joy of your salvation, as he's coming honestly to the Lord with his, you know, absolute mess that he's made and just bold disobedience. And he says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. There's something about living before God with a broken and contrite and honest heart that opens the door for other people to also walk into the kingdom. I've seen this time and time again. When you go first, and you can only go first when you trust in the love and grace and sacrifice of Jesus. When you go first, it gives other people the permission to say, well, oh, I can get that out there too. With, with these people or, or just with God. I'll teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Isn't that amazing? We sang it earlier. What, even what the enemy meant for evil, you turn it for our good. That's the very end of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. That's the message of Genesis. What is meant for evil, God uses for good. What is meant for evil, the sin done to you, the sin done by you, God can actually take that and it, be, and it beco becomes a story of, of grace. And not that it needs to be completely figured out and completely, you know, with a period on it. But his redemptive work in your life, including your sin and failure, including the name Bathsheba for David in this, which is his lowest, worst point, is something that God is using for you to say, maybe I can. Maybe I can bring my real heart to him. Maybe I can bring my real self to him now and in the future. I think one of the other things that it does for us as well is, you know, we're called to, in, in the New Testament, Jesus, you see him, you know, serving people, healing people, caring for the poor, all those kinds of things. And, and we see that, and we're, and we're called to love widows and orphans, and 
that kind of justice-oriented work. And it can be easy when you miss this for that work to become very condescending. But when you get this, it's like solidarity. It's like, I'm, I'm broken too. So this isn't me, you know, coming down to help you. This is me saying, I see me in you. And that's where the empathy comes from. It's amazing how God can beautify our hearts through that kind of grace and you know, uh, invitation to come to him honestly. It's, it actually ends up transforming your relationships with others. But then also, it ends up transforming you. And I think this is one of the most important parts of this. When Jesus, he says this multiple times, you know, like, you know, my name is on your lips and you're like, you know, you're whitewashed on the outside, but your hearts are far from me. And if you keep your heart far from him, you have no hope of fixing whatever it is that you want to fix about yourself or understanding it or having wisdom in there in that secret blocked place. But his invitation is to bring your heart near to him and just imagine what happens when a heart gets near to Jesus. What happens when a heart gets near to Jesus on its worst day and then the next worst day over and over and over again for the course of a life? It gets transformed. That's one of the things that people noticed about Jesus' disciples when he ascended and left. They said, they noticed he, they had been with him. He had rubbed off on them. And that is Jesus' invitation to you and to me as well. To not hide our hearts from him. Because that's actually the only hope you and I have of having cleansed hearts and upright spirits and wisdom in that secret place. And, you know, we have broken spirits and the, the table that Jesus left for us reminds us that that's all that you have to have. You don't have to have a broken body. His body was broken for you. He took the punishment for your transgression and your sin and your iniquity, your bold disobedience and all the things you've left undone. He was broken because death was the penalty. And he said, I don't want them to get that. I will step in and I will take that because of my great love for them. No one takes my life away, I give it up for them. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. Remember me when you gather together. Remember my body broken for you. Remember my blood shed for you. And so that's what we're gonna do in just a moment, I'm remembering that and spending a moment with Jesus. The New Testament, one of the words used for it is communion. So I do the word communing and partnering with and fellowshipping. You're actually fellowshipping with Jesus. That he's present spiritually in this moment with you in a, in a really powerful way. And so don't miss it. Don't rush past it. Sit with it for a moment. Prepare your heart. And then uh, when you're ready, you can come and get the elements. We have the prepackaged if you'd like that. We also have the bread and the cup. You can take the bread and dip it in the cup. We have tables on both sides. 
and you can get the elements and, and bring it back to your seat, or if you want to spread out in the back, um, just to have a little room to spend with Jesus, you can do that, and uh, we'll just take a few moments to do that, and would ask that if you're here and you don't identify as a follower of Jesus, that, uh, that you not come forward to the table, um, just because this is something that New Testament um, makes really clear, this is something to be taken um, seriously by the followers of Jesus, the followers of Jesus only, because we're communing with Christ, and so... Um, but if that's you, we're so glad you're here and, and hope that you'll come again and also hope that uh, you'll think and maybe even pray about what God might be speaking to you um, today. So um, when you're ready, you can come and feast on Christ in your hearts by faith and be thankful. We are so glad you joined us today. If you would like to stay connected with us, visit our website at antiochbhm.com, where you can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. If you have any questions about today's message, or would like to speak with someone about what was shared today, please email us at info at antiochbhm.com. Go in peace.